Miss Arundel died on May the 1st. Though her illness was short, her death did not occasion much surprise in the little country town of Market Basing, where she had lived since she was a girl of sixteen. For Emily Arundel was well over seventy, the last of a family of five, and she had been known to be in delicate health for many years, and had indeed nearly died of a similar attack to the one that killed her some eighteen months before. But though Miss Arundel's death surprised no one, something else did. The provisions of her will gave rise to varying emotions— Astonishment, pleasurable excitement, deep condemnation, fury, despair, anger, and general gossip. For weeks and even months, market basing was to talk of nothing else. Everyone had their own contribution to make to the subject, from Mr. Jones the grocer, who held that blood was thicker than water, to Mrs. Lamphrey at the post office, who repeated ad nauseam that there is something behind it, depend upon it, you mark my words. What added zest to the speculations on the subject was the fact that the will had been made as lately as April the 21st. Add to this the further fact that Emily Arundel's near relations had been staying with her just before that date over Easter Bank holiday, and it will be realised that the most scandalous theories could be propounded, pleasurably relieving the monotony of everyday life in market basing. There was one person who was shrewdly suspected of knowing more about the matter than she was willing to admit— that was Miss Wilhelmina Lawson, Miss Arundel's companion. Miss Lawson, however, professed herself just as much in the dark as everyone else. She too, she declared, had been dumbfounded when the will was read out. A lot of people, of course, did not believe this. Nevertheless, whether Miss Lawson was or was not as ignorant as she declared herself to be, only one person really knew the true facts. That person was the dead woman herself. Emily Arundel had kept her own counsel— as she was in the habit of doing. Even to her lawyer, she had said nothing of the motives underlying her action. She was content with making her wishes clear. In that reticence could be found the keynote of Emily Arundel's character. She was, in every respect, a typical product of her generation. She had both its virtues and its vices. She was autocratic, and often overbearing, but she was also intensely warm-hearted. Her tongue was sharp, but her actions were kind. She was outwardly sentimental, but inwardly shrewd. She had a succession of companions whom she bullied unmercifully, but treated with great generosity. She had a great sense of family obligation. On the Friday before Easter, Emily Arundel was standing in the hall of Little Greenhouse giving various directions to Miss Lawson. Emily Arundel had been a handsome girl, and she was now a well-preserved, handsome old lady with a straight back and a brisk manner. A faint yellowness in her skin was a warning that she could not eat rich food with impunity. Miss Arundel was saying, "'Now then, Minnie, where have you put them all?' "'Well, I thought—I hope I've done right—Dr. and Mrs. Tanios in the oak room, and Teresa in the blue room, and Mr. Charles in the old nursery.' Miss Arundel interrupted, "'Teresa can have the old nursery, and Charles will have the blue room.' "'Oh, yes, I'm sorry. I thought the old nursery being rather more inconvenient. It will do very nicely for Teresa.' In Miss Arundel's day, women took second place. Men were the important members of society. "'I'm so sorry the dear little children aren't coming,' murmured Miss Lawson sentimentally. She loved children, and was quite incapable of managing them. "'Four visitors will be quite enough,' said Miss Arundel. In any case, Bella spoils her children abominably. They never dream of doing what they're told. Minnie Lawson murmured, Mrs. Tanios is a very devoted mother, Miss Arundel said with grave approval. Bella is a good woman. 
Miss Lawson sighed and said, It must be very hard for her sometimes, living in an outlandish place like Smyrna. Emily Arundel replied, She has made her bed, and she must lie on it. And having uttered this final Victorian pronouncement, she went on, I am going to the village now to speak about the orders for the weekend. Oh, Miss Arundel, do let me. I mean, nonsense. I prefer to go myself. Rogers needs a sharp word. Uh, the trouble with you is, Minnie, that you're not emphatic enough. Bob? Bob? Where is the dog? A wire-haired terrier came tearing down the stairs. He circled round and round his mistress, uttering short staccato barks of delight and expectation. Together, mistress and dog passed out of the front door and down the short path to the gate. Miss Lawson stood in the doorway, smiling rather foolishly after them, her mouth a little open. Behind her a voice said tartly, "'Them pillowcases you gave me, miss, isn't a pair.' "'What? Oh, how stupid of me!' Minnie Lawson plunged once more into household routine. Emily Arundel, attended by Bob, made a royal progress down the main street of Market Basing. It was very much of a royal progress. In each shop she entered, the proprietor always hurried forward to attend to her. She was Miss Arundel of Little Green House. She was one of our oldest customers. She was one of the old school. Not many about like her nowadays. Good morning, miss. What can I have the pleasure of doing for you? Not tender? Oh, well, I'm sorry to hear that. I thought myself it was quite a nice little saddle. Yes, of course, Miss Arundel. If you say so, it is so. Uh, no, indeed, I wouldn't think of sending Canterbury to you, Miss Arundel. <laughs> yes, I'll see to it myself, Miss Arundel. Bob and Spot, the butcher's dog, circled slowly round each other, hackles raised, growling gently. Spot was a stout dog of nondescript breed. He knew that he must not fight with customers' dogs, but he permitted himself to tell them, by subtle indication, just exactly what mincemeat he would make of them, were he free to do so. Bob, a dog of spirit, replied in kind. Emily Arundel said, Bob, sharply, and passed on. In the greengrocers there was a meeting of heavenly bodies. Another old lady, spherical in outline, but equally distinguished by that air of royalty, said, Morning, Emily. Oh, good morning, Caroline. Caroline Peabody said, Expecting any of your young people down? Yes, all of them. Teresa, Charles, and Bella. So, Bella's home, is she? Husband, too? Yes. It was a simple monosyllable, but underlying it was knowledge common to both ladies. For Bella Biggs, Emily Arundel's niece, had married a Greek, and Emily Arundel's people, who were what is known as all-service people, simply did not marry Greeks. By way of being obscurely comforting, for of course such a matter could not be referred to openly, Miss Peabody said, "'Bella's husband's got brains and charming manners.' "'His manners are delightful,' agreed Miss Arundel. Moving out into the street, Miss Peabody asked, "'What's this about Teresa being engaged to young Donaldson?' Miss Arundel shrugged her shoulders. Oh, "'Young people are so casual nowadays. I'm afraid it will have to be a rather long engagement. That is, if anything comes of it, he has no money.' "'Of course, Teresa has her own money,' said Miss Peabody. Miss Arundel said stiffly, "'A man could not possibly wish to live on his wife's money.' Miss Peabody gave a rich, throaty chuckle. Uh, they don't seem to mind doing it nowadays. <laughs> you and I are out of date, Emily. What I can't understand is what the child sees in him. Of all the namby-pamby young men, he's a clever doctor, I believe. Those pince-nez and that stiff way of talking. In my young days, we'd have called him a poor stick. 
There was a pause while Miss Peabody's memory, diving into the past, conjured up visions of dashing, bewhiskered young men. She said with a sigh, "'Send that young dog Charles along to see me if he'll come.' "'Of course. I'll tell him.' The two ladies parted. They had known each other for considerably over fifty years. Miss Peabody knew of certain regrettable lapses in the life of General Arundel, Emily's father, she knew just precisely what a shock Thomas Arundel's marriage had been to his sisters. She had a very shrewd idea of certain troubles connected with the younger generation. But no word ever passed between the two ladies on any of these subjects. They were both upholders of family dignity, family solidarity, and complete reticence on family matters. Miss Arundel walked home, Bob trotting sedately at her heels. To herself, Emily Arundel admitted what she would never have admitted to another human being, her dissatisfaction with the younger generation of her family. Teresa, for instance, she had no control over Teresa since the latter had come into her own money at the age of twenty-one. Since then the girl had achieved a certain notoriety. Her picture was often in the papers. She belonged to a young, bright, go-ahead set in London, a set that had freak parties and occasionally ended up in police courts. It was not the kind of notoriety that Emily Arundel approved of for an Arundel. In fact, she disapproved very much of Teresa's way of living. As regards the girl's engagement, her feelings were slightly confused. On the one hand, she did not consider an upstart, Dr. Donaldson, quite good enough for an Arundel. On the other, she was uneasily conscious that Teresa was a most unsuitable wife for a quiet country doctor. With a sigh, her thoughts passed on to Bella. There was no fault to find with Bella— she was a good woman, a devoted wife and mother, quite exemplary in behaviour, and extremely dull. But even Bella could not be regarded with complete approval. For Bella had married a foreigner, and not only a foreigner, but a Greek. In Miss Arundel's prejudiced mind, a Greek was almost as bad as an Argentine or a Turk. The fact that Dr. Tanios had a charming manner and was said to be extremely able in his profession only prejudiced the old lady slightly more against him. She distrusted charm and easy compliments. For this reason, too, she found it difficult to be fond of the two children. They had both taken after their father in looks. There was really nothing English about them. And then Charles. Yes, Charles. It was no use blinding one's eyes to facts. Charles, charming though he was, was not to be trusted. Emily Arundel sighed. She felt suddenly tired, old depressed. She supposed that she couldn't last much longer. Her mind reverted to the will she had made some years ago, legacies to the servants, to charities, and the main bulk of her considerable fortune to be divided equally between these her three surviving relations. It still seemed to her that she had done the right and equitable thing. It just crossed her mind to wonder whether there might not be some way of securing Bella's share of the money, so that her husband could not touch it. She must ask Mr. Purvis. She turned in at the gate of Little Green House. 